Good evening, everybody. This is Chat with the Designers, your live, online, interactive, weekly magazine for hams, homebrewers, experimenters across the fruited plains. This is your host, George, N2APB, along with co-host Joe, N2CX. And as we are usually here talking about some very cool experimenting, homebrewing, new circuits, projects, and in general just talking about some of the new designs that we happen to enjoy working on and ostensibly that's why you're here too so let's kind of get into it we have a great show tonight we think and it's a two-parter um one part is um um, a good update on the remote display node for the precision arduino clock project and the second uh second topic tonight is um whimsically it was called a a breeze what'd you call it you a breeze through power supply basics or something yeah something like that Anyways, it's Power Supply Basics for Hollow State Designs. And this is something we're going to see a little bit more of uh, after the intro tonight. We have kind of an interesting uh, project um, to introduce everybody to for that. And um, it's all on a whiteboard, and you probably had a chance to kind of look at that already. And if anybody hasn't already seen it, the link has been placed on our chat uh, our chat window. Joe, maybe you could edit again just in case uh, somebody joins and didn't get the first uh, message. I'm not sure if it queues up. But we've got a lot of good material on the whiteboard material, so if you're listening live, that's the place to be dialed up to. If you're listening on a podcast, uh, following along on that uh, our whiteboard, which is at uh, www.cwtd.org. And today's date is August 13, episode number 59. 59 episodes. Willie Beckerlani. And uh, so, uh, oh golly, let's, uh, why don't we kind of get into it right away? But, but, but first, before we do that, let's change the order just a little bit around here. Um, does anybody have any questions about projects that they've been working on? Question about where this project is or where that project is? Um, something that you've got on the bench that isn't working? Kind of a, call it a mailbag call up front instead of a little bit down the stream. So, does anybody have any questions about projects that you've been working on? Hey, Rick. Hey, Rick. How are you today? Go ahead. You can probably guess what my question is. I'm wondering what kind of progress you've made on the, uh, the microcontroller project. I think you're referring to the PSOC, and specifically the PSOC controller for the, um, the soft rock or the standalone radio. Is that right? That's correct. Okay, just wanted to get the vernacular correct there. Actually, not as much as I had hoped to. I mean, um, all things considered, I had to pay specific attention to one thing or another, and that was a little bit down. So we're going to, next next week, <laughs> kind of talk about the things that what are coming next week before we even talk about this week's episode. But we're going to catch up next week and focus at least half the episode on the PSOC progress. And I hope to have my filters done that I was showing, that I was indicating as being my next step. Or if anybody else has got some next steps that they're following along too on the PSOC. And just generally detailing out that design a little bit more. Plus, I think as you had suggested before, I got in con- I tried to get in contact with Michael uh, Hightower. I called him Michael Smith in the last episode, I think. But uh, I'd like to have him join us and uh, give his perspective on things, too. And maybe he could even join in or guide us. So next week is going to be that, plus uh, a continuation of our second project here. Two weeks, George. Two weeks, two weeks. Sorry about that. Next episode in two weeks. And... Uh, and um, and as we'll see along here, the the last step of the experimental stage for the display node is going to be adding those uh, 60 LEDs all the way around the, the perimeter, probably using Charlie plexing. Now, if you don't know what that is, 
you're going to have to wait because uh, we'll talk more about that later on. Um, any other questions before we dive into things here? Has anybody encountered any new books, magazines? Oh, I've got a, I got a point about a magazine um, or new parts or something that's kind of come along since we last met. Go ahead. Joe, I think uh, I was telling you and JJ, is JJ here? Uh, not yet. Uh, anyways, I was telling you guys, uh, if you haven't had a chance, and if you haven't bumped into the magazine called Monitoring Times, um, you might have seen that they're going to be closing down shop by the end of this year. And I occasionally looked at that magazine, and I always found it interesting. It's pretty much for SWLs, shortwave listeners. Really good insight relative to shortwave receiving and where to look for certain stations and different projects and so on. And uh, I'm sorry to see it go because I was delving more into, I took advantage of getting uh, some of their neat deals. Um, I'll put the link or somebody can put the link there for um, monitoring times. But if you haven't had a chance to look at that, um, it's still in operation there for a couple of uh, months. But they've got a great deal on getting back issues of their magazines for like uh, two bucks a piece or something. A PDF version, monitoring times, express. And I got uh, I got several years worth of the latest ones, and then I come uh, a DVD of of the last ten years before that. And I don't know if you're like me and and Joe, we love reference material, and the more the better. And sometimes it gets a little kind of hairy trying to keep track of where all the books are, or what contains what material, and where did you see this project or that reference. But ultimately, if you're if you kind of use it and you kind of enjoy working through it, you'll you'll keep a handle on it, and you'll enjoy having that. Uh, did somebody have something to say there? All right, I heard somebody in there. So if you get a chance, look up monitoring times. I uh, just do a Google on that, and you'll you'll see uh, you'll see that. And uh, the editor is a real nice guy. In fact, uh, on Gary, oh gosh, uh, Ham Radio Now, the DVD, uh, the uh, video, video, the weekly or biweekly videos that he does and interviews and such, he featured the editor from Monitoring Times, and it was a really nice interview. I watched that one. I enjoyed that a lot. And you might want to get your hands on that. We could probably provide that link as well. Okay. Anything before we uh, get into things? Any other? Joe, did you have any nifty uh, circuit? or anything this this uh this week call them out of band you know what we weren't working on but uh kind of encountered no i didn't have any um neat circuits but i found one thing out um make a long story short i got a kx3 and i've found that um, um topic we discussed back some time ago um currents antenna currents on a feed line can sometimes affect the radio and i found that my kx3 in several instances was affected by it and i had to put a um a uh, uh choke ballon in the uh, coax feed line to keep it from getting into the radio so uh, something i knew about had not experienced much before came and bit me in the butt well there's a big target there i'm not not, not your butt but even the whole target of, of um rf getting into the uh getting into the uh, electronics and kind of messing things up and being aware that something like that is happening is half the battle solving it is the other half but if you don't know what's causing something like uh, our, our new psk modem the nue psk modem it's notorious for that if you've got high SWR or a feed line that's open and near your in uh, your transmitting near your antenna or you don't have a good ground and RF gets into the electronics and has a tendency to do really weird things like lock up uh, lock up some of the digital outputs and so on and people just don't understand that uh, you got to have you got to control the grounds you got to control the software or the uh, the SWR you got to kind of know what you're doing a little bit in order to kind of make things work right and. And I was going to mention you got that KX3. You've been really hunkered down on that thing. I can tell you really like that. Okay then. Well, let's uh, let's get into the show then. Here, um, 
I'm not even looking at the screen. Somebody's really breaking through with the Vox. So if you don't have uh, if you don't have your your uh, Teamspeak set up to to use a push to talk key, probably the right shift key is the right is the correct one to set it up for. That would be the the thing to do. Please do not use uh, Vox because your room noise is going to cut through and kind of interrupt the speaker. And and that would be me and Joe and anybody else talking. So what we're going to be talking about tonight is an update on the remote display node of the Precision Arduino clock. And we're going to move quickly through this. There's really not a, a great deal of material, but there's some really good stories. There's some really good tidbits here that I wanted to share. And uh, uh, and hopefully that would uh, may inspire you and pave the way for you to do some of this stuff on your own as well. And hopefully, hopefully you guys are, are kind of following along. I know Joe is. And um, I know a couple of others are, and, and, and we kind of iterate either uh, on the Chat with the Designer um, email list or uh, out of band. And it's interesting to see the different things that, uh, that are being done here. So that's kind of fun. But if you recall, just to kind of set the stage, what we have is the Precision Arduino clock, which consists of a base station which is an Arduino, has an Arduino that synchronizes, um, that keeps time, first of all, with an RTC, a real-time clock, and that, um, and we synchronize that to WWV by means of a separate little board that has a 567 tone decoder um, hooked up to the audio of your rig. And when you have WWV tied in, um, uh, dialed up, the 1000 hertz tones at the top of the minute coming from WWV or CHU are detected by the 567 decoder, which is uh, noted by the Arduino. So the Arduino gets a signal at the, t at the precise top of the top of the minute. And at that particular point, the um, the internal uh, clock of the Arduino, as well as that of the RTC itself, are, the seconds are zeroed out, and uh, um, we are guaranteed to be starting at the top of the uh, of the next minute. That's the synchronization process. And there's a little display on that the base station um, breadboard that we have right now, and there are pictures of this on the um, Precision Arduino Clock Project page, which is right is located at our at our homepage on cwtd.org. We've got a separate project uh, listed there for it. And each week we kind of talk about it in little installments here and there. The second half of the project is the remote display side. This is the one that kind of uh, is designed to hang on the wall. I guess ideally right there in, in your shack um, to, to this. Uh, and it has an Arduino um, and a display. And um, it has a little XB receiver, um, this little small 2.2 gigahertz uh, receiver board. And the base station has an XB transmitter module. Um, actually, they're transceivers, but one is set up as a transmitter and, and the remote station is the receiver. And the base station sends to the remote station on the wall, a battery operated thing that hangs on the wall, the time code, which ultimately gets displayed as shown in our pictures on the whiteboard as 16 hours, 35 minutes, coordinated universal time. So we have that uh, operating and we've demonstrated and talked about that. There are two steps more that we're going to be taking with this project before we kind of really turn this into a, a reproducible project that uh, people might want to play around with. Number one is what we did for tonight's episode. We went to more uh, a larger jumbo LED array, those four-digit uh, seven-segment multiplexed uh, LED uh, array uh, that you see pictured there under the part one yellow block. And um, so that's what we're going to talk about tonight, because it was not at all straightforward doing that. Uh, we're using a cheaper, uh, strangely enough, the, the jumbo LED, larger LEDs there are, are less expensive 
than the combined uh, multiplexed LEDs that we used the first time around, the ones that are shown in yellow, I guess green, um, green there in the, from previous episodes. So we went to larger blue LEDs, and in order to do that, because it's just a, a bare <clears throat> LED array, we needed a, um, a driver for the LED display, so we used the Max 7219. All sorts of wonderment uh, about that particular chip uh, was discovered here, and uh, that's what we're going to talk about tonight, how we got that working. So ultimately, the goal was to get a larger display and a little bit more control over the display, ability to, under software control, dim the display, ability to turn it on and off very easily, and uh, make it cheaper. So that's the second half of the project. You got the base station, and then you got the remote display station. And as I alluded to up front, the last part of the of the remote station is uh, we'll cover probably next week, next uh, episode, which is putting 60, 60, 60 LEDs in around the perimeter of whatever board that we've got working. And those LEDs will individually, sequentially light or be illuminated um, on a second by second basis. And uh, again, just to be synchronized up with the base station that is sending the time code over to the wall-mounted uh, uh, remote unit. And we figured that that would make kind of a really interesting project. Very instructional along the way, and that's uh, kind of like what we're talking about here tonight. So we're going to focus on the uh, uh, the larger blue uh, multiplexed <clears throat> uh, LED displays and uh, kind of show you what we did there. Joe, did I kind of outline uh, at least the first half of the program here okay? Yeah, um, in hindsight, um, I might have suggest um, you do a sketch for the next thing to show uh, the, a concept of what the uh, wall clock's going to look like. Ah, good point. Good point. I mean, we talk about it so often, I think it becomes kind of uh, ingrained in our mind, but that would be good. And also the system diagram. I guess uh, I can refer you back to the project page located at our homepage of Chat with the Designers for the system diagram and everything that led up to this point. I didn't want to rep uh, uh, replicate an awful lot of stuff. But, Joe, your point is really good because uh, having a picture of what the end goal is, um, albeit a, a, a poor man's requirements document, it still shows where you're going. Wise men say you don't know where you're going if you don't have a system block diagram in front of you or something like that, right, Joe? Something like that, yeah. I've got this really good chocolate stout. Um, Rogue Ale. I've discovered Rogue Ale. It's just a magnificent brew. Anyways, it, it makes me whimsical and nostalgic and, and uh, all at the same time. But anyways, so let's, uh, does anybody have um, any questions about maybe the project as a whole before we dive down into uh, the weeds of the remote display uh, node as far as what we're doing and such? Okay, and keep in mind, and again, this is this will come from the, the, the bigger picture, I think, if uh, we can get that together. What uh, the base station is going to be the base station for the time, uh, but we've also experimented along the way for receiving temperature from another remote node that is sending information to the base station. We talk, I mentioned just a little bit up front that uh, we're going to weave in a motion detector and uh, probably temperature, not, not temperature, but light, a light sensor if we have enough bits to be doing all of this sort of stuff on the remote node. Um, there will be other nodes that we will have in the ham shack that will serve our purpose one way or another relative to ham radio or experimenting on the bench and so on. Kind of a neat thing to be able to control your world, monitor your world. There was an episode or a, um, an issue of uh, Circuit Seller Inc., and I say it that way because uh, CC Inc. was the original name of the magazine back then. Steve Ciarsha had a uh, had a uh, kind of a mantra that he followed over the years of controlling things in the home, home automation. And one of his famous articles that 
he kind of stayed true to the theme over the years was calling controlling your world. And that's kind of what Joe and I wanted to be doing here, um, controlling our ham shack. That's kind of like the modern day ham equivalent of, of that. But uh, sensing, monitoring, controlling, command control, relay, things of that nature are all quite possible and fun with little nodes, ostensibly with these uh, Arduinos. And as you'll see, the goal for using these Arduinos is, uh, you might say, you know, Arduinos, yeah, okay, they're not too powerful, and they're expensive, and so on. Well, the comeback for that is, well, they are powerful if you kind of divide up your tasks into little chunks that can be accomplished with a, a microcontroller, such as the uh, the Arduino. And at the heart of the Arduino, of course, is the Atmel 368 um, chip. And you say, well, you know, you got to have the Atmel, and you got to have the big board, and it's either a Dumilinov or a, an Uno or a Nano or an RBBB or a, or a whatever. And we, uh, uh, Frank, who is not here yet, N3PUU, with whom we've been really iterating a lot with these things, has uh, discovered, and, and anybody can discover this, but Frank really brought it to light quite conveniently that. Once we have a dedicated application for an Arduino, there's no reason why we really have to have um, an expensive Uno, or in this case here, I'm, I'm showing a fun Duino, which is a, uh, about 15 bucks, $15, um, or even the real McCoy Nano, which is on the order of $40. There's no reason to have that kind of, uh, all that extra stuff. We can get by with a little bit of glue, extra glue, but with a $2 chip, a $2 Atmel pre-programmed with the... Um, um, with the Arduino bootloader and uh, call it the uh, the executable, the operating system, if you will. And that will be it. So for $2, we'll be able to have the controller for this remote display node. A little tougher maybe to make it as flexible and reprogrammable, but hey, once it's programmed and doing a job and kind of your node is doing what you know, you got to you gotta follow your node where wherever you're going, and ultimately this is where it's taking us. So it's, uh, this is still, this is kind of puts Arduino in the right place, and I think uh, it's quite doable. Joe, did I have that right as far as... Uh, oh, Frank. Frank, you're here. Do you have your audio here, Frank, tonight? I guess Frank isn't listening. Nope, nope. He doesn't have his audio yet. Almost. Maybe a couple of more episodes, Frank. And I was just telling the people about how you've been uh, iterating with us and finding the right chips we can be using uh, in the Arduino projects and, and ultimately how we can use pre-programmed Atmel 368 controllers um, once we have the design down and instead of buying and using an expensive uh, Arduino controller in, uh, in our projects. So that was a, a great idea and all it takes is some bootloading, uh, boot programming, bootload programming. Okay, so um, what we've done here is really quite, uh, quite straightforward if you can see it. Um, what we've done is... Uh, there you go. You can see if you slide down a little bit and you see that the wiring diagram, kind of like a grayish yellow. It's not a great one. When I get a, a moment, I'll, I'll draw that up nicely and, and larger and you can read it. But what we've done is connected those three parts. The Funduino, or the Arduino on the right-hand side. The In the top left is the Max 7219 uh, display driver. And then below that, of course, is the blue LED array, the four-digit uh, seven-segment LED array. And the photograph below that is is actually what it is, is the incarnation of that. So I, what I did one, uh, one day this past week was to kind of just kind of lay things out like that, draw up the connections, and are really pretty straightforward. From the Funduino, the Arduino, we have three lines. That's the SPI lines. So, the, the, the Joe, SPI, serial something? Serial programming interface? I'm not sure. And I guess in these in this world of TLAs, you forget what the T and the L and the A are, but nonetheless, um, the SPI uh, Peripheral. is... Peripheral. Gesundheit. And um, you've got the... Uh, 
Uh, you got the data line that you're sending over a clock uh, that uh, allows the, the Arduino to send data bits individually, and you can clock them into whatever the receiving device is. In this case, it's the Mac 7219. And once the 16 bits are programmed, because it's a 16-bit word that you're shifting into um, bit by bit into that uh, receiving device, once all 16 bits are clocked in, you, you wiggle the load line, and boom, that 16-bit word is in the peripheral device, the Mac 7219. So that's all, it's, that's all there is. So we use three bits, and boom, that's it. Now, if you can tell, we've got, uh, oh gosh, uh, on the A side, we've got eight analog and digital, but eight, eight, uh, eight I.O. lines on the left-hand side, and it looks like about uh, 13 on the right-hand side, and we use three here. Uh, we use uh, four, uh, I'm sorry, two for the XB, and uh, we're going to use uh, nine for the nine bits for the Charlie Plex, and I think we're going to be able to do it, but we'll see. So the Arduino sends over the control words to the Mac 7219. Now, I thought this was a, uh, a simple chip, and it's really quite uh, powerful. But in its simplest implementation, you send over uh, the bit pattern. It says what LED you want to come on and in what position. And because it's connected up in the, in the way that all the wires are going down from the uh, Mac's driver down to the LED... <coughs> Um, the right bits are be able to turn on, and what the Max 7219 does is it uh, retains the the digits that are desired to be displayed in an internal 8x8 um, scratch pad memory. SRAM doesn't stand for scratch pad, but I mean it's it, um, um, it's an internal memory, and um, it has an internal clocking mechanism that ultimately scans repeatedly back and forth. Um, across all those digits repeatedly and uh, in order to display the information that is stored in its internal memory. Stated differently, once I output numbers 1, 2, 3, 4, as is displayed right there, I could disconnect. I could pull the wires for uh, DN, clock, and load. I could pull out the Arduino, for that matter, if, it, if I individually had 5 volts applied. And uh, that display will continue on just as it is. I could, uh, um, and, and that's because the Max 7219 is, is taking care of the displaying effort. Uh, and it's quite nice for that. It's a little bit of an expensive chip. Um, single quantities, it's about 10 bucks. Quantities gets down to like 7.95 or something. And uh, there was some discussion on that list today about some offshore uh, knockoffs perhaps being available for a lesser price. But as always, you got to be careful what you buy. But the combination of that driver and the display is probably, I think, I'd have to check it out, but it's probably less expensive than the integrated unit that we did, uh, that we used last time, the green numbers that were shown. Um, Joe, did I kind of explain that uh, the diagram of what we've got there, right? And, and maybe you kind of want to, I don't know if you've studied the uh, 7219 enough to know the registers, at least as far as uh, what you can do with it, as far as uh, powering up, powering down, going dim, um... Uh, there's a BCD representation. Instead, you can control each individual bit uh, of those segments, uh, segments A, B, C, D, E, F, G, and H. Uh, or there's an internal decoder on the Mac 7219 uh, chip, such that all the control, all the Arduino would have to do is output the four-bit binary coded decimal number in order to display that digit number in a given uh, position. But uh, does that all sound kind of uh, cogent, Joe? Yeah, I've not had a chance to dig into real detail in that uh, 7219, but it, it does an awful lot. It takes care of an awful lot of work that uh, I've had to do uh, <laughs> with a whole bunch of logic and a, a number of chips in the past. One of the things I really like about it that uh, you mentioned, and we'll get into just a tad later, is that uh, indeed you can control the uh, duty cycle. 
of the uh, of the LED display, so you can cut down the uh, cut back the intensity. And using the blue LEDs for the display, like you are, you can cut the uh, operating current way down. Um, and still have usable brightness, which will lead to longer battery life for the wall clock. Now, you mentioned that, and I wanted to kind of question you on this separately, but why blue? Why do you say blue is going to allow us to cut down and have lower usable visibility? Just based on um, the experiences we've had with blue LEDs, uh, you particularly in the, the, um, the SDR Cube, having to cut the power way, way back beyond what we've done with uh, red LEDs in the past. Okay, good. That's what I thought you might have been um, mentioning there. And uh, what I was getting at was that uh, the uh, the sensitivity of the eye, I think, is most uh, oh, shoot. I really, I always forget now which is which. But which yellow green, one? I think. Yellow green. Okay. So yellow green is the most sensitive, which tells me that you could probably have the lowest amount of illumination or lumens. Uh, the power being the power being in, in of illumination, the measurement of illumination, lower level of that, and for an equivalent reading of a different wavelength. But nonetheless, I, like you, I, I like the blue, and it really seems to punch through and be very attractive. I don't like red. I don't like to use red in general. Um, red LEDs, red uh, lights, red blinking. From my background in instrumentation and on the production floors of different uh, jobs I've had along the way, red means danger, 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 Will Robinson, and something that needs attention. I think for that reason, too, no longer do you see red indicators and red LEDs in automobiles, dash panels, unless there is something needing to have attention paid to it right away. So blue is cool, and uh, we'll see. An interesting thing is um, I need to put a uh, a smoke panel, some kind of a neutral density panel, I guess, or ideally a blue panel, over the LEDs. So I don't see, um, as you can see here, you can see the, the segments of the digits that are turned off. And it's okay. I mean, you can see it's one, two, three, four, but it becomes... What I did was I took some... Uh, there's some... Uh, you, everybody's familiar here with the anti-static bags that you get ICs in, right? So it's kind of like a smoked uh, gray or something. So I snipped that up, a couple layers of that, and put it over top, and it works pretty darn well. Um, but I'll have to see if there's some specific blue uh, gelatin or uh, film that can be pushed or put over here for purpose of a, of a bezel and uh, kind of a filter to make it really, when that happens, the number stands out like boom, right in your face. And it's really, really nice. The, uh, the, the diagram below at the chart with all the ones and the zeros and the X's, and an, X, an X through a zero means I don't care, at least in my notation. I had to interpret the, uh, the, um, the, the data sheet. I thought it was going to be an easy thing, but it turned out to be more complex, more powerful than I really thought it was. And there's a good thing that comes out about that. But nonetheless, if you get a chance and if you're so inclined to look at that and try to interpret, what I did is I interpreted all the different commands, as it were. The commands are lifted down the left-hand side of, the, of that chart. It reads uh, decode mode for, all, for four digits, scan limit to display digits zero through three, intensity control, display test and normal operation, shutdown and normal operation, and then the codes to display a digit to um, uh, data to digit displays number one, two, three, and four. Um, and all the different bits that would go into there and that pattern. And it's, it's interesting if you've never kind of gone through a, a microcontroller data sheet or even just a simple data sheet such as this, a simpler data sheet such as this to try to figure out 
What bit patterns do you need to send it in order to tell it to do something? It's really quite an amazing process, and I think you would enjoy it. Um, oftentimes, we just sort of say, tell me the numbers to send to the chip to make it do it, and I'll do it. And I don't really care. But going through an exercise like this, encountering a new chip, understanding what kind of registers are around to make it to do the different things, you really appreciate the designers and how they put internal decoders and almost a little internal engine that interprets the, the serial data that you're sending over in order to have it uh, display the numbers. And as the commands sort of illustrate here, um, you know, we can turn, uh, um, I'll just make this simple with a few of them, the intensity control, for example, I can send an intensity control command A on 0A07, you see in the right hand of that row, that's the bit interpretation of that. The 7, or in other words, bits 0, 1, 2, and 3, you see, are 1, 1, 1, 0, respectively. That happens to be midpoint in the, um, in the um, intensity range that one has software control over. So if I moved it down to 0A02, and I programmed that, and if you look at the code, which is in there in a jumbo7 underscore test2.ino link, that's just above that chart. The software, uh, the sketch for the Arduino has this hard-coded, but if I change that hard-code to 0A02, the, the display intensity goes way down because there's an internal programmable, uh, there's an, an internal current generator, a uh, current, uh, oh gosh, Joe, uh, current reference generator? Um, current, current mirror? Uh, it's, a, it's something like that. It's, it's sort of analogous to being able to control the amount of current going through the LEDs, which, of course, controls brightness. And also, very directly, to my point, uh, controls the amount of current that you've got, uh, uh, that, you're, that you're pulling from your power source in order to display. So, A0, a zero A02 is very low, and that would uh, give us about, for what you see being displayed there, is about uh, 6.2 milliamps. 6.2 milliamps is all that's required for that. Each individual segment can be 10 milliamps. It can take up to 10 milliamps. Um, if you were just to hook up a 9-volt battery and a, uh, well, or whatever, kilo-ohm resistor, uh, 9K, that's 1 milliamp, 900 ohms would be uh, 10 mils. So you would... Uh, think it would be a more current than that, but it's not, which is really good for the power considerations. We're going to get to that right now, and Joe's going to take over and talk about power because we have to be really worried about that. But let me just leave it at this. It's really interesting and fun to be controlling these devices uh, that have internal registers like this, and you can make it do a lot of things. The last note about this Max 7219 chip is that it's, an, it's called an 8x8 display driver. If you look at it, um, each digit in that seven segment plus decimal point is eight, um, uh, eight elements. And um, this chip can display up to eight digits, not just four, such as we are doing, but we could have zero, uh, we could have display, say, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. And that's where the eight by eight internal scratch pad memory comes from. And you, my point being is that it doesn't have to be arrangements of seven segment displays. It could be individual LEDs. So with this one chip, you can control up to 60, 60, actually 64 LEDs. And that becomes another alternative besides Charlie Plexing that we're not going to talk about tonight. But that comes, that's another way to actually control uh, the seconds. Uh, LEDs that we're going to be talking about later on for ticking off the seconds. Joe, let's talk about power. Why don't you uh, kind of introduce the topic there and why why we're worried about power? Alrighty, thank you, George. Yeah, well, we're we're worried about power because the uh, thing on the wall is going to be operated from batteries. So we want to be sure that um, you don't have to be swapping batteries all the time. So I did just a simple um, simple power budget, um, just a notional sort of thing to. Um, 
to try to get a handle on how much power the thing was going to take so that we could uh, see what kind of battery capacity we needed and uh, uh, possibly look for some areas where we could uh, cut down the power drain. So the, the first thing is just guesstimates for each each part of the uh, of the, the wall clock. And the uh, the idea is that uh, as we go along, we're going to uh, uh, we're going to refine the uh, the spreadsheet, the power budget, and to um, to see what kind of battery life we can get. Now, not going to go into a lot of detail on it, but um, there is a spreadsheet, uh, a cut of the spreadsheet with uh, three lines in it in the uh, uh, in the whiteboard um, for each function in the uh, in the clock. There's a a line for the amount of current it takes, and uh, I also indicated duty cycle. So there, there's a processor. I'm, I'm lumping in big blocks here. Processor processor we say takes 20 mils guessing that the seven-segment display would take 40 mils based on previous displays. Looks like it'll be less. Um, the individual LEDs that'll be around the face of the clock, I was figuring 10 mils each. And uh, the XB, the uh, RF module, take 50 mils. So I just took three cuts here. If you look at the three lines, A, B, and C, um, with the processor on full-time, uh, seven-segment display on... Um, Full time, and then the um, line B has the uh, the XB module on only one percent of the time, and that cuts the power for it down from 50 mils to half a mil average. So the total current, uh, if you were running everything at a 100% duty cycle, would be 120 mils drain. If you cut back the uh, XB and only update um, every 100 seconds, it would knock the uh, total current drain down to 70.5 mils. Then there's a third line, which also cuts back the duty cycle of the displays um, to 33%. And that would uh, that would knock the total current drain down to 43.7 mils. The idea was that uh, the display would be shut off during uh, during the night. It'd be a light sensor. Uh, in truth, there are some some more things we can do uh, to actually cut these numbers back and be cranking them in. The idea was to have a a um, uh, spreadsheet here so that we could see where the current hogs were and what we could do to each to tweak them, get the most battery life. And what we assumed was we we're going to use D cells. And um, just knowing how alkaline cells work, we'd want to um, we'd want to limit the uh, the end of life for the batteries to 7.2 volts. Um, I, I'm sorry, to uh, 1.2 volts per cell, so we'd use 60 cells to get 7.2 volts, which is the minimum that the Arduino would need. So um, for those those current values, you can extrapolate on the uh, constant current performance chart that's shown here and get some idea of the battery life. So line A on the uh, spreadsheet would give you uh, 90 hours operating life with 120 mils. Line B at 70.5 mils would be 170 hours, which is a week. And um, line C, cutting back the current even more, would be about 300 hours. And uh, as you can see from some of the stuff that George mentioned earlier, we're going to cut back the current drain substantially so that we're probably going to get on the order of a month's life out of the batteries, which is a good thing because you don't want to be cranking those batteries back. So just a quick run through of a power budget, what it means, and what we can do with it. Uh, question. Go ahead, George. Yeah, Joe, thanks. Um, yeah, and I think I uh, just mentioned again that the numbers that you did there were all in, were all theoretical without having anything working to be measuring or comparing against. 
And what I've discovered only within the last day or so was empirical values of, you know, as I said, six point something milliamps, um, in, at least in a, in a not so bright room we can get by with. And it'll, it'll uh, really uh, make the batteries last long. My question about this is that um, you say that 7.2 volts is a minimum that the Arduino is going to need. What kind of, well, maybe the answer is here. What kind of droop? No, it's not. What kind of software, what kind of voltage droop, uh, low-level drop is going to be seen in the these Everettis or the alkaline batteries in general. Uh, we'd want to have it, you know, if, if they're quite linear and we want to have them be able to droop a little bit before, uh, before the Arduino is not able to function properly. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, actually, uh, if you look at the um, if you look at the chart, the chart shown is for constant current, and this is the maximum droop. This is how much the uh, the battery would uh, terminal voltage of the battery would be uh, for a constant current drain um, that uh, that we're talking about. Another thing to mention is that um, the assumption is that uh, we're using a 5-volt regulator that needed at least 7.2 volts to um, input to provide a good regulated 5 volts output. If we used a, um, a lower forward drop uh, regulator to get the 5 volts, um, we could operate it even longer because the battery could, uh, could drop even further. Oh, that's a great point. We may have a, a really nifty opportunity uh, to do that because, as I said, uh, if this comes to fruition like I think it will, like I would like it to, you know, we're going to be optimizing this uh, design uh, by at least one way of going to the lesser expensive chip only, uh, the Arduino chip or the, um, the Atmel chip only. Um, we'll have full control over what kind of voltage we want to present to it, what kind of regulation that we want to add, all of which is going to be less expensive than using a, um, an Uno, a Dewey Decimal, or, a, um, or a, a Nano for sure. But, um, okay, that's good because, again, you'd want to be sure that once the batteries start drooping a little bit, you want to give them you know, some, some room for the droop kind of thing. You know, give yourself some latitude. Yes, indeed. Um, yeah, a lot to play with. The um, the current budget was just based on a bunch of assumptions, so we had a known starting point, and we could walk from there. Okay, we've got okay, some we've good got... references there. I think you want to t everybody want to take a look at that um, and what we've provided. And Joe, could you just mention just a little bit about those PIR sensors? I think uh, that's going to be kind of interesting because they. We did, I'm not sure that we included those in your power budget up above. But again, empirical measurements on this were like incredibly low power, um, all things considered, which makes it going to be a pretty useful thing. Um, how would we use that? Um, you mentioned about turning off the power when the, when the room goes dark, but also if you happen to walk out of the room when uh, and leave the lights on, like, you know, go up for lunch or whatever. Tell us a story about that. Yeah. First off, uh, was there a question from someone? I had raised my hand. Go ahead, Rick. What's up? Well, I was just thinking, because uh, I've looked at a variety of, of microcontrollers over the last month, and inevitably, whenever you start reading the, uh, the specs, a huge part of the information provided with the, uh, with the component is all about how wide a voltage range they'll work over and how easy it is to program the controllers to shut down completely or partially uh, when, it's, when there's not something that it has to be doing. Um, and apparently that's now become a very significant part of design of, of especially consumer stuff because uh, everybody's trying to squeeze every possible milliamp out of uh, what is almost, almost always battery power. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that certainly is a trick that can be used. Well, we'll resort to that when we have to. It, it looks like 
for this, the primary current drain is going to be uh, in the displays. Um, I used a bogey of about 20 mils for a for an Arduino. I suspect that uh, using a bare chip, uh, the drain is going to be considerably less. We'll have to also take into account how much the uh, the glue logic, the uh, drivers, and everything take. But uh, yeah, yeah, uh, throttling back the processor when it's uh, not needed to uh, change data could also give us much more life. Good point. So the PIR, Joe. Yes, the PIR. Now, as I as I just fleetingly mentioned in doing the uh, uh, the uh, power budget, uh, I considered one way to save power was to shut off the uh, shut off the display at night when uh, when there'd be nobody around to uh, to watch it. And uh, the assumption was we'd use some sort of uh, photocell or uh, light dependent resistor, something like that, to uh, sense when there was no light. Well, George uh, said, "Well, shucks." Um, if there's going to be somebody in the room watching the clock, they're probably going to be moving around. So um, he he found some uh, PIRs. Some um, <laughs> I'm trying to remember what the heck PIR stands for. At any rate, it's a uh, motion sensor based on uh, sensing a change in yeah passive infrared. Uh, Frank uh, mentions um, it looks at um, infrared light and it looks for changes in infrared light level. And in this case, the infrared would be body heat from a person. Um, so as long as a person is in the room and he's doing some sort of movement, uh, the PIR sensor would sense the movement and it would keep the uh, circuitry alive. When movement stopped, for example, when someone left the room or uh, at night when you're not even in the room, the idea would be to throttle back at least the displays and possibly uh, um, possibly the processor itself so that um, we could cut the current drain way, way back by a factor of uh, 10 or more so that um, so that we'd increase the battery life simply by not uh, not activating it when it wasn't needed so uh, that's a good uh, a good good find and something i suspect that uh, we'll be able to tweak and uh, make the thing even even more uh, uh, battery friendly I'm not going to go to button cells quite yet but uh, Certainly, we should um, probably get several months' life out of uh, one side of batteries. And uh, good, good find on George's part. We're kind of iterating back and forth here, uh, banging good ideas against each other. And I think we got a good thing going. Yeah, that's kind of fun too. And it's really interesting. Let me make mention of this point. We're going to wrap up this part of the of the of the show and then move on to something completely different. But. If you haven't discovered it yet here, this program, Chat with the Designers, is not about um, finding the niftiest, uh, coolest, best way to achieve something necessarily, or the cheapest. Or um, You might be able to go out in the market, and in fact, I know, because you, know, you, can, you can buy some pretty cool clocks these days that have the LEDs in them, and it's all done, and it runs on you know, like a, a coin cell or whatever. The process that we're following here is not as much at all, at least in my mind, in Joe's mind. It's not the end goal of, you know, getting the clock that you can hang on the wall and maybe have it uh, be synchronized in a cool manner. But instead, it's the process of getting there. It's the design considerations that we make. It's the products and technologies that we find along the way to achieve something. It's the it's the mastery or the the, the, uh, the the discovery, actually, for example, on the Max 7219 chip, the discovery along the way of how to control some of these technologies to be able to do something that you wanted to do. At the end of the day, you might not have the, the, the coolest or most elegant design or the, the certainly probably not the, the, the cheapest. Um, but you'll have, we will have uh, gone through as designers, as as homebrewing aficionados, the mental process of ferreting out 
the salient points of a component or a module or a technology, mastering it enough to do something useful with it, and then actually building it um, in some fashion, whether even if you're just watching us kind of build it uh, uh, and, and you're experiencing this in kind of a, uh, what do you call it, a, um, in a virtual manner, I guess, or doing it on your own bench. And it's that kind of accomplishment is what we really like to be doing here and chat with the designers. So, you know, there can be better ways and better chips. I, Rick, I thought you were going to go to, you know, well, we can get a chip that is... Uh, that has this built in or this new chip and get, uh, you know, and has built in Linux and you do this and the driver's already, and that's probably going to be the case. But, you know, doing it with an Arduino and learning how to do some, you know, mastering some of the, the, uh, the artful part of the design is, is, uh, is I think what, what, what frankly, it's what kind of turns me on. I don't know about, uh, uh, anybody else or Joe, what your take on this is, but that's the part that really kind of floats my boat as far as how to really use some of the components and technologies that we've got. Alrighty then. So, um, let me set the stage, Joe. Are, are there any questions about this, uh, about the remote uh, clock? And I think in the next episode, we're going to really tie things together in a very uh, cogent, sensible manner. But relative to kind of what we talked about tonight, the, the whole topic on the, on the clock side was, you know, the uh, using larger displays how to interface a nifty uh, display driver and uh, how to tie it into the big picture of, you know, using it uh, with uh, battery operated uh, on the wall. Um, but uh, any questions on what we talked about here tonight? Yeah, Frank, uh, go ahead. Yeah, George, uh, apologies for, for not being uh, ready earlier. Work has been a little crazy. I had literally just ran up the stairs. Uh, just a comment to add, you spoke before about embedding the chip and, and uh, difficulties programming or challenges with programming. And, and that's actually something that is, is very easily done. Um, if we look at the schematic of the RBBB, the really bare bones board that you have up above in, in your breadboard in the picture, um, if you use an outboard USB uh, to TTL interface, uh, you can put a five or six pin header on your circuit board, tie it into the at mega chip, and the only additional components you need is a 10K resistor and a 0.1 uh, cap on the DTR line. And then you can, you can plug in your interface, you can program the chip, you can unplug your interface, and now you have a, a programmable embedded at Mega with very little uh, additional components needed. Thank you, Frank. That is excellent. That is excellent. And again, kind of to my point just a moment ago, even if you're not interested in or planning on building this clock, the, I'll bet you nickel that because you're listening along here, there's some other project that you've got a special affinity toward that uses an Arduino. And here's an opportunity for you to go from a $40 uh, Dewey Decimal, or uh, uh, Dewey, du oh shucks, the DOE board, and uh, or a $40 Nano, um, all the way down to a $2 chip, and um, still be able to at least get that programming in. So appreciate that, Frank, and uh, gonna tap your uh, tap your shoulder when it comes time to get the the boot loading, uh, the boot programming started. Yeah, one more thing, George. Oh sure. Yeah, we're talking about D cells. Uh, I'm really surprised no one has mentioned it, but uh, uh, a al possible alternative would be to use some very lightweight uh, uh, lithium cells to uh, power the clock. And that would um, that would some of them have really high capacity, and uh, in fact, might be something for us to consider once uh, once we make it real. Make it real. Good idea. I'm using uh, lithium cells in. I, I've got a prototype. Uh, um, what I call the DC power cube for the um, SDR cube line. And I've got the uh, lithium cell loaded in that uh, four inch cube uh, matching enclosure. 
uh, voltage display on the front panel, little red button to turn it on and off. And I've got a connector on the back such that at some time, occasionally, I just got to plug in the special charger for it. And that's what could be done here, too. So that's, uh, or to take the battery out and, and put it uh, next to the charger offline. Very good, Joe. Very good. Okay, let's get in quickly and, and spend, uh, oh, I don't know, maybe 15 minutes or so um, on uh, what we're talking about as far as the power supply basics for hollow state designs. Let me introduce the project, Joe, and, and uh, then you can take the helm. Um, as, as the, sci as the, uh, as the uh, subtitle or the, the part two explanation says there, what we're going to be doing, we think, there's always subject to change, but uh, a number of us here in this forum um, have kind of an affinity toward hollow state design or using thermotrons, a.k.a. tubes. Um, and uh, as I've explained in the past, uh, tubes were elusive for me as a beginning ham, and I got totally into the solid state world. And only within the last five years, ten to seven years, maybe at most, I kind of came back and did the full circle. What's old is new again for me and discovered, quote unquote, um, thermotrons and uh, um, have been just having a ball with it because it's like all new technology for me, even if it's old. And in one hand, as Joe always explains to me, uh, the, the pitfalls of thermotrons, the high voltage and parasitics and lethal voltages inside and, and big and, and uh, uh, hot and uh, you name it. This is like semiconductors. The semiconductor world just did, ran circles around the old thermotron designs. But at the end of the day, thermotrons are, are really relatively straightforward to program if you uh, to, to to design with, and uh, uh, that's some of the attractiveness to me. So what we wanted to do is uh, we wanted to take a simple project, uh, call it a thermotron audio amplifier, and this is uh, uh, highlighted in one chapter I forgot what of the Hollow State Design Book by Grayson Evans, T A two Z G E. I don't know where that's from. Uh, also, he's uh, K J seven U M. But turkey, we, turkey. He's a turkey. Thank you. Appreciate that. Um, and we talked about this at length, sort of, um, in the previous episode. And hopefully uh, some of you have ordered the book. I just got my own, my own book again. I had uh, given my book away. <clears throat> I had given my book away uh, to a good friend and uh, just now today received uh, another one in the mail. So now I'm back in line and in, uh, in, in gear for this. Well, we chose a, a design, a simple Thermotron one-stage audio amplifier. We can do a, um, a an analyze this type of episode about it. <clears throat> we can build it up uh, a prototype, really simple, as you can see in the photograph there. And uh, ultimately, at the end of the day, have a nice <clears throat> here we go again. Have a nice amplifier that could be used uh, to uh, power a speaker that you would, uh, and then you would hook up the input to um, either an MP3 player or maybe your uh, your QRP rig that doesn't have enough power, and ultimately use this project. But along the way, as I mentioned before, we kind of learn a lot of different things. So before we kind of get into this, or as we get into it, the first place to start with some of these uh, uh, power-hungry um, thermotron designs is the power supply. And here's where, where Joe kind of takes over with a lot of his experience um, and uh, his notional design approach. And I'll let Joe kind of take it from there. Thank you, George. Yes. You know, <clears throat> you didn't mention, I had forgotten to mention in the past, one of, uh, one of the things that always gets me about tubes is that, yes, they're hot, and yes, they, they thermally regulate so that you've got this, uh, this box that heats up and everything stays stable. But uh, there is a disadvantage to that. In, in electronics, heat is your enemy. So you have to be very careful. 
those of us who had the old uh, tube TVs with phenolic printed circuit boards remember how the heck uh, the darn the tubes would go and you could replace them but eventually the uh, the printed circuit board that was the the main uh, uh, circuitry connection uh, facility for all the components that would start to uh, weaken from all the heat inside the box and crack and you'd end up with uh, broken traces and eventually uh, the whole box became useless because of the heat anyway that's that's just philosophy um, yeah, this is kind of a breathless run through of the uh, transformers um, or uh, power supply basics with uh, with uh, thermotrons. Um, basically, they all use transformers. You have to uh, you have to convert um, the AC line voltage to some other voltage that you will need, uh, be it a filament voltage, which is less than five volts. Sorry, less than a hundred and twenty volt uh, line or something higher. Uh, so you use a transformer. They are still available. Uh, they're a bit expensive. One good source is uh, Antique Radio Supply. We have a link further uh, further on down the uh, the whiteboard for them. They're expensive. Um, something you can do, and I've done for uh, low current simple supplies, is that um, you can use back-to-back -back filament transformers. If you have a filament transformer, you put 120 volts in, and say you get 12 volts out. 12 volts AC out. If you run that 12 volts then to another filament transformer, hook up the other way, feed the 12 volts to its filament uh, winding, the result on the output will be again 120 volts with some loss, but it's isolated from the AC line, which is very, very important. You don't you don't want to have a hot chassis radio. You don't want to have something that depends on uh, whoever wired your house to uh, to have ground be ground. You want to have some sort of isolation. So anyway, it's a, a cheap way to go is to use some filament transformers. I've even used the uh, 12 volt one amp things from Radio Shack to do some simple power supplies. Uh, and at the same time, you get a uh, you get a, a filament output, get 12 volts output for your filaments. So it's very good. Uh, one of the other things, uh, go ahead. I was going to say, often uh, you can, that first power transformer, the 110 down to 12, uh, can be obtained as a wall wart. Yeah, I don't like to do that. Uh, I have this thing about wall warts. They tend to be very lossy and uh, not very reliable, but that's just me. Just got to make sure they're AC, though, output. Yeah, that would be a good idea. Yeah, yeah, that's certainly something you can do. Uh, yeah, something simple to do and uh, probably get one at low cost. Uh, another thing you need in a power supply, of course, is a rectifier. And now thermotrons are pretty good as rectifiers, um, and particularly if you're working at higher voltages. But they um, they do have some disadvantages. I say that I've used them, but uh, I, I know. Uh, one of the things that, that bugs me the most about them is that um, they have a large voltage drop. Uh, it can be 30 or 40 volts. If you're talking about a 500-volt uh, power supply, that's not all that bad. But if um, if you're using something simple like the audio amp we're talking about, where you're only going to be operating at 150 volts or so, uh, you don't want to lose that much. Uh, you don't want to lose that much voltage. Uh, 30 or 40 volts is an appreciable part of what you're doing. Probably the easiest way to go is to uh, to use solid-state rectifiers, uh, which have a volt or less uh, drop, even a current. Now they are more fragile than tubes. There's no question about that. But um, uh, you can take precautions and not not get into problems. One of my favorites for high voltage supplies is um, the one in 4000 diode. It um, it has a thousand volts uh, peak inverse rating at uh, and it'll supply an amp. And even in single quantities, they're only 50 cents. Um, you can use them. They're very good. Uh, you can also buy uh, package, prepackaged full wave bridge rectifiers, um, which makes wiring very very simple. Um, and yeah, I, I just have a note here to use full wave bridges. Um, you you want to have something that uh, rectifies on both sides of the line. 
Um, transformers don't like DC. If you use a half-wave rectifier, in essence, you're trying to pass DC. And transformers tend to saturate their cores. You get very hot and the blow fuses when you do that. So a simple thing to do is to use a bridge rectifier, even with a single single winding. If you're using a tapped winding, you use a full-wave uh, two-diode thing. Um, you need some sort of filtering in the power supply, and it's usually in the form of a large electrolytic capacitor. We have a couple pictures of them here. Uh, they are still quite available, and uh, you can get them from Antique Supply and some other places. Um, always pays to get good, uh, good electrolytics. Uh, in power supplies, because of the heat, again, that's one of the first things to go is... Uh, is the uh, electrolytic caps, the filter caps. So um, it's important to get ones with a high temperature rating and uh, don't skimp on the voltage rating. You, you need to use something that is uh, several times the working voltage of what you're going to use in the supply. And if you use um, surplus components or unknown uh, rectifiers, it's always a good idea to check for the effective series resistance. Um, which will tell you how good they're going to be. We talked about a simple component tester back in May, uh, the link for it in the whiteboard, um, which is an inexpensive way of, of checking electrolytic caps to, um, to see their, uh, uh, their effective series resistance. Uh, the higher the effective series resistance, the less effective they, they are, and uh, the more they have a tendency to not, not operate properly. Um, any questions uh, so far? Okay, I'm running through it kind of quickly. Yeah, go ahead. Oh, that was just me, Joe. I was just—I didn't realize uh, the fact about uh, the DC through the transformer, and you mentioned that earlier this evening during private conversations. But then again, also now with the half-wave, um, just using uh, a half-wave uh, rectifier, and that's that's really quite amazing. That's that's a that's a good takeaway for me here tonight. Yeah, I can I can tell you a story. Actually, I had wanted to mention it, I forgot to do it. I worked for a. Um, uh, RCA one time in a group that evaluated components. We were doing life tests on uh, silicon-controlled rectifiers, SCRs, and uh, we had done some stuff on the bench, and, and uh, what we're doing was applying high peak currents to them and um, seeing what their life would be. Well, we breadboarded one on the bench, ran it right off the line um, through a transformer so that we were safe, um, and, and use the 120 volts directly and a big, uh, big power resistor to set the current. Well, that worked fine. And then we went and we hooked up uh, 20 or 30 of them, a fixture with 20 or 30 of them, and uh, we flipped the... Uh, and the idea was that it would, um, it would operate... Uh, it was rectifying on the, on the AC line so that it would conduct a half cycle through the SCR, through each SCR into the load, um, and we'd get accelerated life testing by operating it off 60 hertz. Uh, Eamon, you have a question? Uh, apparently not. If you have a uh, box set up, uh, please be quiet or set, uh, set your thing to uh, push to talk. Otherwise, uh, we may have interference here. Anyway, uh, we set this thing up with 20 or 30 uh, units, and we turned the fixture on, and bang, we popped the fuse immediately. So we checked the wiring, went through everything. Everything was perfect. So uh, we turned it on again. Bang, the damn thing went off again. <clears throat> and then it occurred to us, we had all the SCRs operating on one half of the AC line. Problem was, we're running them at peak currents of, <clears throat> pardon, tens of amperes. We were asking the transformer in our test set to pass the DC, <clears throat> which it didn't like to do. So what we ended up, and because we were trying to pass DC through the transformer, the core in there saturated, and it became a, basically a short circuit. 
So what we had to do, simple thing, we split the um, the diode, the SCR bank in half, ran half on one cycle of the AC and the other on the other half uh, cycle of the AC. <clears throat> so then indeed we're passing AC through the transformer and not DC. Excuse me for a sec. A little dry throat here. Anyway, getting back to the uh, back to the plan here. Um, there's a simple notional schematic here for a uh, simple power supply. Um, and I, I have some weasel words in here, but uh, supply has uh, 120 volts in. There's a on-off switch, single pulse, single throw switch, a fuse. Very important to have a fuse in there for safety. And then two transformers. As I mentioned earlier, there's a 120 volt uh, filament transformer. Transformers down to 12 volts. Then that's connected to the uh, 12 volts winding of a second transformer. And then the 120 volt uh, winding of the second transformer provides the output. That goes through a full-wave bridge of 1N4007s, um, and then that converts the uh, the AC into DC. Uh, I'll show you pictures, but I, I think you can visualize what it is. Uh, now, it's it's DC actually uh, with 120 hertz ripple. We have a big, fat 100 micropower capacitor here to uh, take the ripple out and to give us a steady DC. The peak voltage out of this will be about 170 volts. If you um, look at the uh, square root of 2 times 120 volts, it's roughly 170 volts. Um, this is, uh, this is a, uh, a crude supply. It will give you 170 volts. The uh, ripple will change drastically with loading, as will the output voltage. Um, so this is a starting point, but uh, what you want to do for something like this is to experiment around and to um, possibly put a filter choke in here, um, vary the, um, the capacitor, the electrolytic capacitor to get more filtering. And um, uh, this will let you get started with something to uh, provide a DC supply. Um, and it's a, as, as with the um, spreadsheet for the uh, current budget, it's a it's a starting point. It's something to uh, to work from, give you the basics, and uh, experiment with to uh, um, to get uh, get something going. And George and I indeed will be doing this uh, as we go along. There's uh, oh, and another important point um, I have run into any number of times. I also have a I show a bleeder resistor on the output capacitor. When you shut this off, the capacitor will slowly drain, but it has a fairly high leakage, and it might take minutes to uh, to bleed off its charge. So it's always a good idea on a power supply, particularly a high-voltage supply, to have a bleeder resistor here to discharge the capacitor so that you don't have an unknown uh, safety problem of a high-voltage present even when the circuit's off. Um, believe me, I haven't zapped that way. George has some pictures in the whiteboard of some um, some other power supplies or vintage ham radios. They're a little more complicated, a little fancier. And two supplies that, um, well, there's some uh, circuits for uh, some good supplies. Um, there's a 12-volt there's a uh, DC um, filament uh, supply and a high-voltage supply would be um, same basic thing we're talking about here, a little higher current. There's also a, um, a supply for an ultra-linear ultra amplifier. You'll note that they also have filter chokes in there. And uh, there's very good supplies. Two supplies that would be good if you're working on the bench and you don't want to uh, design something yourself. The Grayson book has two supplies in there, uh, which are, are very good, basic, solid designs. One is a lab supply that has a fixed uh, fixed voltage, depending on the uh, voltage regulator tube, and a variable 60 to 150 volt supply. 
There's another one he has that is a uh, has two outputs. It has a 250 volt output variable, 75 volt output variable, and he has uh, voltmeters and ammeters in there to monitor what you're doing. Very good for the bench. And he also supplies a uh, 6.3 and 12 volt uh, AC filament outputs that uh, that are good. These are uh, these are things that if you want something solid, you want a design that looks good, you want to build it and have it work right off. This is what you want to do. But uh, George and I are going to dink around with our uh, notional supply here and uh, see just what kind of performance we get out of it. Uh, so there's some also some power supply design references and some parts references listed in the whiteboard for those who want to dig deeper and um, learn what's going on. And uh, I'm sure we'll be discussing more in the future. Any uh, any questions on the supply? Sorry for the brevity, but uh, it's getting late. Yeah, Joe, um, not quite a question, but... Um more of a comment about the use of two transformers um, either by luck or good design that's going to be great for us that are living abroad um, for example myself living in Australia I'll be able to use 240 down to 12 and then use a transformer to bring it back up so we can all use the same design and actually, um, you could play other tricks with that. Thank you, Todd, for mentioning that. Yeah, one trick you can do is if your line voltage is 240 volts and you wanted the lower output voltage, you could use a 240 down to 12 for the input transformer. And for the output transformer, you could use one that went from 12 volts up to 120. Similarly, here in the States, where we have 120 volts, you could use a, um, a 120 down to 12 filament transformer for the input. And um, to get more voltage, double the voltage on the output, you could use a 12 volts to um, 240 uh, transformer. So a little bit of, uh, little bit of um, flexibility there. Thank you. Uh, thank you for mentioning it, Todd. Some interesting things come to mind here, Joe, as far as like components. We don't have, get a chance, we don't have time to get into it tonight. But it's going to be interesting to talk about it uh, downstream as far as uh, um, special current considerations that you might want to make um, in your transformer selection. Um, the capacitor, uh, the filter capacitor, as you did uh, mention, is ever so important. And uh, proper selection of its voltage and getting as much of them um, in a banked together in order to get the, the larger microfarad uh, uh, type of reading is, is great. Um, the voltage selection on, on the diodes. I guess much of this can, um, comes about from just the, the higher voltage nature of thermotron needs and uh, the corresponding component needs that are important when putting together such a power supply. Oh, yeah. Yeah, there are lots of considerations here. Um, this is just an intro to it. And uh, there's lots of neat stuff to dig into and uh, plenty of material for us to, uh, to go into, uh, drill down at much more depth. One final comment on um, on the tubes is um, you'll notice that it's uh, Grayson spells it thermotron with an A in there um, as opposed to thermotron. Well, as someone who worked in the industry for years, I know that thermotron happens to be the trade name for some environmental uh, chambers, so he couldn't use that. You know for sure that that's why he chose that? No, but I, I think that might be a good uh, good reason. He probably looked it up and said, oh, nuts, I can't do that. <laughs> Um, just as an aside, um, on the power supplies, um, some of you know that I've been make, I have had a long, uh, long going project of building the ultimate regen receiver um, from uh, N5Q. Oh shucks, I forgot Bruce's uh, Bruce Vaughn. Um, it's now Silent Key, but he's very famous for his uh, regen designs and his artistic work. And his most famous one was the ultimate regen 
it was published in QST and, and elsewhere. Um, his design is something that uh, I really, um, uh, I'm taking pains to uh, do it in a very good way. And in one, one aspect of that is that the power supply and the audio amplifier are in one box. And I made some really nifty, really nice wooden boxes. Now it's on the order of maybe, I don't know, two feet by two feet by three feet. And uh, uh, the purpose for, and one of the purposes for that is to um, make it modular for using the power supply in other designs as well. And that's something that you might want to consider here if you really wanted to kind of make a bang up type of project instead of just a, a breadboard. Um, one might want to make, you know, get a little bud chassis and, and do it upright and get some nice transformers or just do what we're doing here, but they ultimately have a good solid power supply in a packaged uh, a chassis or a box or an enclosure of some sort. And then you can couple that, uh, you know, the output voltages, the filament, low voltage AC for the filaments, um, the, the higher voltage DC, and have that available for other projects that come along downstream. But um, it, it's kind of fun to think along these lines, and uh, especially if you have a workable project at the end. Um, nice, nice work on putting this together, Joe. Yeah, thank you. It is just a beginning, and I hate to think how many years ago it was when I built the first one. I can tell you what, he used a 5U4. It didn't use uh, silicon diodes. Yeah. All righty. Um, any other questions about uh, uh, the Thermatron uh, power supply um, and or the uh, the remote display clock for the Precision Arduino clock? Um, anybody have any questions about the show here tonight? Now is the time. Okay, Joe. Um, tell you what, I'll take it home, and then you can close uh, close the uh, uh, put the ribbons on it, as we say. So tonight we had a, a pretty good session, I think. It was uh, uh, two parts. Uh, the first was uh, showing the next uh, next to the last part of the evolution of the Precision Arduino clock um, and how we are going about the the remote display node and the designs for power, the design for ease of viewing, um, and the the issue of controlling everything from a an Arduino that ultimately can be boiled down and uh, to the Atmel chip in a pretty cost-effective manner. And definitely keeping in mind the adventure is not in the end goal, although the end goal here is pretty good, is I think about having such a, a nifty clock with seconds that it took. They're ticked off around the perimeter of the board on the wall um, with LEDs and synchronized to WWV. I mean, you know, that's something you could uh, take to work and not anybody, not everyone would be able to appreciate the value of that. Pretty unique for the ham radio world to have that. And the second half of the episode here was uh, having to do with Thermatron power supplies, some of the basics and an overview of the parts and techniques as we often do to start things off. And uh, we're going to quickly zero in on an application project, a very specific project that we will build up um, with the power supplies we've shown here is a one tube amplifier and do some measurements. We'll, we'll do the uh, analyze this before we get there and um, kind of take it uh, to a working example as we often like to do. So um, I had some fun here tonight, Joe. I really appreciate uh, uh, the work that you did in putting together tonight's show here with me. And I hope that uh, I hope that others uh, here live with us and podcasters will let us know your uh, your thoughts on, on the material, maybe on what you'd like to see more of, and uh, uh, what uh, what detail, what additional detail you might like to hear about on the projects that we've got going, Joe. Indeed, I couldn't find a push switch. I don't know if you noticed on the uh, the uh, chat window. There's a little byplay here. There actually are uh, products called Thermotrons with an A in there. So my conjecture about the Thermotron thing was uh, uh, not 100% true. Oh well, um, the guy lives in Turkey, so I guess he doesn't care. 
Very good. Any uh, any questions? Um, uh, any follow up? Anything else uh, from the group uh, tonight before we close up? Okay, hearing none. Thank you very much. Oh, for Charles was in there. The, uh, oh, I didn't see it. Go ahead, Charles. Oh, I probably should have brought this up during the opening when you talked about out of band uh, circuits that we've seen lately. Probably, maybe everybody knows about this already, but I just came across it about two weeks ago. If you have a Raspberry Pi and you just have an antenna, the only thing you really have to put in between it is uh, one low-pass filter, and uh, the connection is to just one pin of the Pi, two if you include the, the ground pin, and then you can do a whisper because the, the uh, whisper, as you know, is a digital signal, and it, you can get di direct RF off of the the pie pin and uh, and then of course the low pass filter will uh, filter and I'll post a link of it. Uh, have you guys heard of that yet? Yeah, I, well I have. I'm not sure about George. Yes, um, there have been several people doing things with RF right out of the Raspberry Pis directly. Uh, thank you for mentioning it. I don't think we've mentioned it on the uh, um, on the show here uh, in the past. Um, some really neat stuff. Um, getting very simple to do. Someone also mentioned that um, somewhere in some literature that um, it was a great thing that now anybody can put a transmitter on the air. They don't have to worry about special hardware. Oh my. <laughs> okay. Thanks again. Uh, anyone else? Any comments or questions before we close up? Okay. Very good. Thank you all for uh, listening in tonight and uh, participating. Uh, George and I both had some fun. I hope we uh, hope we gave you some things to think about um, and uh, got your interest up on uh, what we're doing and uh, how things are progressing. Um, we certainly will uh, carry them on in the future. And uh, go to the um, chatwiththedesigners.org page. Look up our stuff. Look up some of the past segments and uh, listen to the podcasts. 73. We'll see you all again in two weeks. Good night, everybody.